folklore, the beliefs, traditions and culture of the people. Passed on in the most part through the spoken word, folklore expresses our values, our shared ideas with others. It is both how we were and how we are. Without a record, our customs and traditions may become lost to us in the present, but under the surface, we still draw on them. We still know. It's time to recall our forgotten history and to record the new. This is the Folklore Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. The field of podcasting is one of good and bad, quality and misinformation. A bit like the internet generally. And life. Monster Talk is a well-established and respected podcast presented out of the US by Blake Smith and Dr Karen Stolzno. It is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine and describes itself as the science show about monsters. In fact, it covers far more than just that, and presents, like ourselves, interviews with experts in their fields. This month, we join up with Monster Talk for a crossover episode, where we discuss in more detail a subject we've covered before, that of my special area of interest, spectral hounds, and also the uses of motif within folklore. Monster Talk will be simultaneously releasing their version of this interview, I encourage you to visit their site and listen, as their edit will be different to this one. And if you haven't listened before, explore their back catalogue of many fascinating episodes. You'll find them at monstertalk.org. We begin with my asking Blake and Karen for a quick introduction about themselves. I'm Dr. Karen Stolzner. I'm a linguist and I'm a host of a co-host of Monster Talk, and I'm also an author. I've written a number of books, including uh, most recently, Would You Believe It, uh, God Bless America, Hits and Misses, and others. Um, so, yeah, I'm also a, a skeptic and have been uh, working as a, a paranormal investigator with a, a skeptical slant for uh, two decades now. Wow! Excellent. Thank you, Karen. Um, Blake, what about you? Sure. I'm Blake Smith. I am a host and producer of Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. Uh, My background is IT, but I have been an active uh, researcher into paranormal matters really most of my life, uh, becoming pretty much a a skeptic uh, in the, I guess, late 90s, uh, something like 1997. Uh, But... um, a lot of that had to do with the folklore, in fact, uh, the work of Jan Harald Brunvand uh, and his work on urban legends kind of opened the door to me, realizing that a lot of things that I just took at face value were probably not quite what I thought. But I love monsters and fantasy and folklore, and uh, I hope I'm not a boring old skeptic sitting in a lounge chair. Or Is it lounge chair skeptics? That's not right. Armchair skeptics. Armchair, Whatever. yeah. <laughs> Depends what country you're in. <laughs> I think I've listened to enough of uh, your podcast to know that you're far from that, Blake. Um, I, I, I met um, I met Jan Brunvant years ago at a 40 and Times event, and um, I agree with you. He is a fascinating, fascinating chap and uh, a good introduction into the crossover, actually, between skepticism and um, folklore. Thanks. I, I, he's, he's a hero of mine, and I've got a lot of his books, so good times. <laughs> Cool. I guess we'll, we'll get into it then. All right, let's hit it. Yeah, there we are. <laughs> so in this episode, today we're going to be talking about spectral black dogs through this lens of folklore. And um, in your book, Black Dog Folklore, you've got hundreds of references to these stories. Um, but can you tell us how you in particular became familiar with black dog lore and how it, what, what sort of precipitated the, the collection of this book material? Yes, um, absolutely. I mean, I kind of came across a black dog by accident in a lot of ways. Um, In the 1990s, I was looking at the archives of Theo Brown, who was a a very, very well-known and well-respected 
folklorist in the UK. Throughout the kind of 1950s, 60s, 70s, she was a, a past president of the Folklore Society and, and very involved in that way. Uh, she lived in the area that I live in, in Devon, and she collected masses of information on pretty much every aspect of folklore that you could imagine. Um, and she bequeathed all of her uh, literary works and her collections to the University of Exeter, um, uh, where they're housed now in the Special Collections Department. Um, so when she died, all, all of that work went there. And in the 1990s, I was accessing those archives just really because I was poking around for anything interesting from my local area, because I'm, I'm very interested in kind of local folklore uh, of the southwest of the UK. And, and that was primarily what I went in for. But then I came across uh, this part of the archive, which was just labelled Black Dogs. Um, and it kind of piqued my interest because there was a lot more of that than there was of anything else. Um, it was stored in the way that traditional folklorists uh, would normally keep materials, uh, which is in any kind of random container that you might come across. Um, you, you can ask my wife to clarify exactly <laughs> how this works. <laughs> so there was an awful lot of paperwork um, labelled Black Dog, and it was in kind of... Um, potato crisp packet uh, boxes and um, a big blue metal ammunition tin from the army and all these sorts of things. Uh, and as I went through this, I realised that it was actually a wealth of information that Theo had collected. She was one of three folklorists in the UK who primarily collected black dog stories through the 1930s to the 1970s, I guess. Um, so all of her archive was there. And within that, were three draft copies of a manuscript on black dog folklore, which Theo was working on. Um, she had worked on this book for some time. It had never been published, any of this material. Um, she very sadly had a stroke, um, was unable to continue working on it. Um, when she eventually passed away, all of this went to the University of Exeter Collections. Um, so I was speaking with the Special Collections Librarian about it, and we thought, this is really interesting, you know, some, something should be done with this. It's actually quite an important collection, uh, and is accessed um, very infrequently, really, these days. So we tracked down Theo's literary executor, who was another very respected folklorist, also now deceased, um, called Dr. Hilda Ellis Davidson. A number of people probably will know from she wrote extensively on folklore subjects um, and I spoke to Dr Davidson and we had a conversation about it and she said you know as long as you can retain the academic standing and work in, in the manner that Theo was this absolutely should be brought to publication in some way so that was my original goal then was to work on this archive and bring it to publication as I did that I became very very aware of the fact that it was very much of its time in the style of language and the way that it was written. So actually the manuscripts that were there needed a very, very serious rewrite. Um, and a lot of other material was then collected as, as we went through um, by myself and by other people, which all got combined. And the upshot a number of years later um, is my book, which is also partly Theo's book. It's a fantastic book too. <laughs> so interesting. Yeah, it Thank has you. an astonishing amount of material in it. it I mean, information-wise, mm -hmm. it, it's a reference uh, that I think if anyone's interested in folklore or black dogs in particular, they really need to have a copy. Thank you. Yes, there's a, there's a lot that's gone into there, and a, a lot of collecting took place by a number of people really to to form this book. Yeah, and and so, you don't need a you know, potato crisp boxes to hold it together like you, <laughs> it's all in a nice <laughs> volume right so <laughs> absolutely I, and I, hasten, I hasten to add <laughs> the archives at the university are now stored in correct archive boxes that was just how it was when it originally went in it has been sorted oh, since then it's a nice story <laughs> so <laughs> what are these black dogs then i know we've talked about spectral black dogs are they ghosts are they something else can they be lots of different things well, that's the $64 million question, really, isn't it? Um, <laughs> what are they? Um, right. They are a number of things. They can be a number of things. Um, 
but the caveat that I would always put in at this point um, mm -hmm. is that I am a folklore researcher. What I'm not is a paranormal investigator, uh, and also what I'm not is a scientist. So my standing is not to set out and try to prove or disprove to believers or skeptics what these things are. Are they ghosts? Are they real animals? Are they a bit from column A or a bit from column B? Mm -hmm. That's not what I'm interested in. To me, as a folklorist, it actually doesn't matter what they are. What matters to the folklore side of this sort of um, area of study is why people experience what they report that they do. Um, why are they seeing these images? Why do these images behave in the way that they do? Uh, and what is going on? Now, as a skeptic, either of you two would turn around and say, well, unless we have good scientific evidence to prove that these are apparitions of ghostly black dogs, then they're not that. Fair enough. Um, in the same way as you would say, OK, until I can get past this plaster cast of uh, this large foot and see a 10 foot tall ape like creature lying in front of me, then it is not Bigfoot. Um, but what we're looking at here and what we're interested in here really is why people have these experiences. And what's fascinating about this area is that the experiences go back a long, long way. But many people who have these experiences believe that their experiences are unique. So they often don't report them for a long time. Or when they do report them, they're not aware that anybody else has had something similar. And then when you look at the accounts, and I have hundreds and hundreds of accounts um, in my archive, when you look at the accounts, what you see is actually there are very, very strong similarities between the way that these things are reported uh, by people, you know, three, four, five hundred years ago or three, four, five days ago. There are key recurring phrases. There are key methods of behavior that the animal exhibits. I'll use the animal for want of a better term. Um, and what we're interested in, therefore, is why this is happening. Now, folklore is all about symbolism. It's about decoding the motifs and the symbols within these events and looking at them and saying, OK, what does this mean? What does it mean to the person that experiences it? And why do they experience it in the way that they do? So that's what we're interested in. We're not interested in saying this is definitely a ghost. This is definitely a misidentified big cat, which is another theory as to what a lot of these things are. Right. What we're interested in is why this has been said in this way. We're definitely interested in those aspects as well. Yeah. It's, yes, absolutely. It's a it's a different, I guess, uh, a somewhat different modality. And so the a lot of our work tends to be on evaluating whether things are provable, demonstrably so that sort of thing or you know i what we don't want to do is get into the well it was probably this or it was probably that which i, I always hate because um it's so easy to just you know make assumptions but be dismissive yeah, yeah but i love these legends i love the stories i mean i think mm -hmm. that's one of the things that uh, is important you know our, our show is not just a debunking show which is you know you already know this but yeah <laughs> well this it's is worth yeah. mentioning it. <laughs> This is the key thing as well, isn't it? Because as skeptics, I think you would both probably agree that you have to approach everything that you look at as in an open-minded way. Should be. Yes. Should do. Exactly. We try to. Yeah, yeah it is. And it is as, as a folk, as a folklorist, I do exactly the same thing. So mm -hmm. if somebody it relates an experience to me, I will be completely impartial, open-minded about it, and say, okay, that's what you experience, and then compare it to the record. Has anybody else experienced this? what could be going on here so how does that work um from a methodological perspective the it, it seems like part of what a folklorist does is collect stories but stories can be created far more quickly and in much greater volume than an academic could collect them so how does one determine what is worth saving and what's not how do, what's sort of the criteria for inclusion if you will 
Well, this is part of the reason why folklore collection, I think, has quite a bad rep with a, a number of other academic disciplines, because most of it, if not all of it, if you like, is important to collect because we're interested in how things change and develop over time. So why do people experience things now um, in a different way to how they experienced them before in the same way? So what we're looking at is the way that this symbolism or, or the interpretation of this symbolism changes over time. So really we need to be collecting um, all sorts of examples um, so the, the methodology really is, is if somebody has an experience that fits into the um, particular motif that the folklorist is interested in, then it's worth collecting that. Um, because experiences over time are very similar, but, but how people relate them, you've covered this before, I think, in, in the show, how people relate them is different. So think about fairies, for example. So in Victorian times, earlier than that, people talk about being pixie-led or being away with the fairies. You know, they report absences for long periods of time. Fairies take human babies away and they um, re replace them with changelings. So you get a sickly fairy baby in return. Um, there is kind of interbreeding folklore between humans and fairies. Compare all of that with a number of the UFO abduction stories that, that you get in the UFO press, the symbols are really, really similar. Um, even down so far as um, people who report being pixie-led and who, who report being taken to the fairy realm often report particular smells, earthy smells. Some UFO abduction cases, people report smells like cinnamon, which is a very earthy smell. So even down to that level, you're finding very, very strong ties between the stories that are being told. But the way they're being decoded and understood by the people who experience them changes based on the cultural patterns of the time. So in the Victorian times, fairies made sense. In the 20th century, UFOs make sense. So it's a kind of modern adaptation. Yes, exactly. And that's exactly what happens within... Uh, within folklore stories and, and the way that that these experiences are related by people, they, they change over time. Um, ben Radford, I think you've had on the show in the past, um, looked at a very similar thing in, in his work on the Chupacabra um, and how stories change and develop based on, uh, in more modern times, the proliferation of horror stories within the media and the way that horror films are dealt with being much more intense than in previous times um, and therefore the experiences that people have draw on that culture um, we, and you find it in black dog symbolism too people in modern times are reporting much more demonic aspects based on the kind of lycanthropy and werewolf tropes that you get in in films and and stories these days in the older accounts they're a lot more gentle in many ways because they're based on the kind of penny dreadful style literature it's how you draw on the culture that's around you to interpret your experience so i find it oh. over <laughs> Sorry. I find it interesting that you uh, are talking about how these stories change over time, yet at the same time, um, you're also saying that there are a lot of similarities over time yeah. uh, in the, the terminology that's used when people describe their accounts of what occurred. And I know that you've collected hundreds of accounts and these seem to be UK specific. Have you looked at stories in other countries? Are there similarities with these stories across uh, culture and time? Uh, yes, there are in both cross-culture and cross-time. You, you find them in both ways. So across time, for example, um, we go back to the earliest account that I know of, um, which I have in my archive, um, which comes from 1127. Wow. So we're, we're talking like nearly a thousand years ago. Um, so the earliest example is in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which is a, a kind of history of England that was written for King Alfred. Um, 
it was sent out to monasteries around the 890 AD time, um, and it was copied by the monks in the way that um, the documents were in that time. And these different monasteries held their own copies of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, but then they started to add their own history, more local history to them later on. And the, the longest running of these chronicles ran until 1154, um, which was in Peterborough. And in that version, we find this account in 1127. Um, and the account in that document says, and this relates kind of to the wild hunt aspect of, of the folklore. The, the account says, many men both saw and heard a great number of huntsmen hunting. The huntsmen were black, huge and hideous and rode on black horses and on black he goats and their hounds were jet black with eyes like saucers and horrible. Now, what's important in that account is this phrase eyes like saucers. Right. Um, and I'll tell you for why, because that phrase occurs from that point throughout uh, time right up to modern accounts uh, and it occurs time and time again uh, by people who have no knowledge particularly of this subject um, so they're not consciously drawing on this particular phrase now there is a problem um, which some people might have picked up on with this and that's that this word sources doesn't actually enter into the English language until the 14th century. So that translation is not actually strictly accurate. It's the translation that most uh, modern documents that refer to this um, will quote. But it's not strictly accurate. And the, the point that I make in my book is that actually the, the correct translation of that phrase is that the hounds were black and big-eyed and loathsome. So the meaning is the same. But what's happened is this phrase, eyes like saucers, has been juxtaposed. It's been mapped backwards onto this original phrase, uh, which, again, highlights its significance. And you find it in Hans Christian Andersen's The Magic Tinderbox, um, which features uh, a, a black dog as a guardian of treasure, which has these massive eyes. Um, and you find it in accounts right through to the to the modern day. So there are these key things that, that kind of travel through time and again and again they will crop up. So the question that we have to ask is what's going on here? Why does this happen? The, the um, hypothesis that's put forward by um, Carl Jung in the Jungian psychology is that we're drawing on some kind of folk memory, a collective memory. Um, and, and that is part of this cultural decoding of the symbolism that we take part in. So, yes, across time we find these things. But, yes, also we find them across um, different cultures internationally as well. So, for example, uh, the, the Latin American version of the black dog um, is called the Cadejo. And I'm sure it's not pronounced like that, but that's how I'm going to pronounce it, because that's my best stab at it. So uh, in in the Latin American folklore, we find um, this particular version, which comes in two colours, actually. There's a black version and a white version. The black version, as you would expect, is more evil and it's more dangerous. Uh, the white version uh, is more protective, and those are both aspects of black dog folklore that we find in the UK but um, what's interesting about that version in Latin America is that we find etymology that's very similar to um, versions in the UK so in the UK um, and I think you've had David Waldron on as a guest in the past who's talked about um, his particular studies of on a more local level of black dog folklore and he looked at the shook and the shook is is one of the two types of uh, black dog law that we find particularly in the UK. It's found in the northern part of the UK predominantly, and it's the more demonic and portentous aspect of the black dog. Uh, now the name shook 
probably derives from the Anglo-Saxon, and it probably comes from shocker, which means devil, which is why you get this kind of demonic aspect. But there are other possibilities. Um, Jennifer Westwood, who's quite a well-known folklore researcher, suggested that shook, and there are other versions of the name, shock is one, um, comes from a description of the shaggy hair that this particular type of dog was said to have. Um, now, what it's, it's less likely that that's the case, but it is possible. But what's interesting is if you go back then to the Latin American version of the black dog, it also has shaggy hair. Uh, it also has fiery eyes, which again is very similar to the kind of tropes that you get here. But in a lot of modern Spanish dictionaries, the Cadejo as a, as a black dog is given a secondary meaning. And the secondary meaning is a tangled knot of hair. And that kind of ties in with this idea of shock um, being, which is um, a, a term for a, a tangled knot of hair anyway, a shock of hair in, in some respects, but also this kind of shaggy coated dog that's often put forward as a, a, a derivation of the word shuck ties in very nicely. And also interestingly, a lot of accounts in Latin America and they're drawing on their own culture here, say that the eyes of the dog are very large. And in this case, they say that the dog has eyes like tortillas. So this is very similar, very similar to the eyes like saucers aspect that we find in in UK accounts, but it's drawing on their own culture to, to make the um, description relevant. I do find it interesting the uh, that the saucer reference um, is... is I guess incorrect, or at least it's anachronistic, because it reminds me of uh, in flying saucers. Uh, the whole idea of flying saucers is tied to a mistake in that Kenneth Arnold said that his original sighting were things that skipped, like saucers are going across a pond. Now, why you would have saucers and tossing them onto a pond, I don't know. But that he didn't say <laughs> that they were they were not saucer shaped. They flew like saucers yeah. skipping across a pond, but that got that got misconstrued in the in the media and it, the media. And people yeah. started reporting seeing flying saucers. But I, I'm <laughs> thinking about all these saucers, you know, eyes as big as saucers, but then they're not they're they're predating the uh, the use of the saucers. I guess what this all leads to is I'm wondering, is it possible they weren't dogs at all, that they were table werewolves? <laughs> There. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let me throw let me throw this back at you. Um, from from your side, um, as uh, somebody who wants to analyze this kind of stuff on a skeptical level, um, we're not looking here at a cryptozoological creature. So the majority of these accounts are not claiming that this is a physical creature. So how do you interpret these experiences? How would you look at what these people are experiencing? Oh, it, it's really difficult. I think uh, as skeptics, we normally look at these stories as a just case by case. Um, so to to look at them all at the same time, it's it's just very easy to be dismissive or to, to try and come up with a couple of explanations. Uh, and, th and that would be unfair. Um, so really the, the best thing to do is to look at a particular example. Um, it's really hard to say what these could be. Um, you know, but I, I've just, with the aspect of you talking about the um, similarities from an etymological standpoint, it seems to me like there's some kind of diffusion that's taking place in retelling these stories anyway, just an oral diffusion of it, it spreading over time, and that, that's why there would be similarities across time. Um, so I don't know if you'd agree with that or not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think that's, that's quite valid. Where that becomes more interesting by extension then is, is where people are using these same linguistic phrases or these same descriptions, physical descriptions or descriptions of the behavior where they have no particular knowledge of the subject. So they don't have this background to draw on. So what we have to ask ourselves there when it becomes interesting is, are they drawing on a subconscious cultural level on something? Because at the end of the day, there's a large amount of uh, function of the brain that we still don't understand. So is that something that's possible? Maybe it is. 
uh, or is something else going on? Is it, and is it possible that the, the stories themselves, uh, that there's an oral tradition that's not being captured um, because it's, you know, it's uh, it, it disappears, right? I don't know. It, I don't know what the right word is. I want to say transient. That's not quite the right word. But it's it's ephemeral. The the, the oral traditions and and the people who tell the stories may not be the people who are writing them. And the people who are writing them may actually have more familiarity with that other ex- extant lore from the time. So the I guess. There's so much that's of interest to me that falls outside of, you know, directly with skepticism. But the 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 sort of uh, the ideas of um, viral transmission of data that that idea of things going viral, I think it predates the internet. Even though um, I think so too. That, you know, yeah. people think of it. Yeah, right. I mean, we have you know folklore. Those stories spread, and I, I don't know how much of folklore deals with the sort of the patterns of transmission, but it, it's obvious that you hear. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, um, people who have um, um, what do they call hydrocephaly? Um, there's a lot of stories. It's not a very nice set of stories because that's a really serious medical condition. But there's lots of stories in urban legend lore about uh, the collection of people with that. They called them waterheads or melonheads, and and uh, they they treat them like monsters. That, that there's these places where those people live and they'll attack you or whatever. It's a strange mm. legend. I don't know why it exists, but it exists and it's repeated in multiple locations because I've run into people and I've read uh, where people say, oh, well, that's near my house or, you know, which is a classic urban legend thing where I, I it didn't happen to me, but a friend of a friend, you know. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Faux floor is, is very well known. <laughs> right. So yeah. those stories also predate the Internet and those stories are all over the United States. I, I know of at least three places, but I'm sure they're more widely spread than that yeah doesn't it tie in with roswell in some versions as well I the, the roswell that. it's entirely possible that it have does. you know i've i've heard that version that the uh, the roswell alien autopsy footage were although not necessarily being said that 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 is um somebody who was suffering from that particular condition but that kind of image is drawn from this idea that um, actually there was some kind of experimentation going on involving people who suffered from that condition, and that's how it got misrepresented as, as being an alien. Right. So two uh, variations cat- of that. I don't know if it's a story collection time, but there, there is the star child um, skull, which uh, was most likely a child that was suffering from that condition. Um, and mm-hmm. that's been... Uh, tossed around as being an alien hybrid. And then there was um, some government research talking about a, a high altitude uh, a deformation, temporary deformation of swelling of the head of, of uh, people who had, uh, or animals uh, that had been tested from parachutes, that sort of thing. But yeah, that's, it's the same idea. These, these, uh, these elements, uh, and I, I want to say the word motif, but I don't know if that's the right word here. The, uh, I think that has a specific meaning in folklore. Maybe we can talk about that, but um these, yeah, these, sure. these story elements, um, they get repeated again and again across multiple stories. And um, that is something that's, you know, from a skeptic's perspective, there's this whole thing about doing scientific skeptical analysis of claims, right? And then, you know, one of those we start with, did the thing ever happen in the first place? We take the null hypothesis and take a look at that. Well, sometimes when you're dealing with things where you can't have that evidence, you still have to wonder and see if there's any way you can do analysis, right? So I know that, for example, in biblical scholarship, uh, are, there's like textual analysis that they, they use. And they have a lot of methodologies for, for trying to figure out when things happened and uh, uh, you know how likely something was to have been written by the original author. There's all these ways of sort of uh, examining and deriving more information out of what at first may seem like a small sample. And um, I, I am fascinated by this, and I, I, I want to understand better. I, it may not be able to uh, help us understand in particular cases, um, you know, of particular monsters, whether they're real or whether they're not. But 
what it does give us some insight into is I think the human nature of, of telling stories and, mm. and and the ways that we might be able to figure out more about what was uh, I, I keep wanting to come back to the word viral, but what seemed like an important thing to tell, right? And, and in yeah. urban legends or, or a lot of those stories, there's a moral piece to it, you know. So I know that I, we, when we talked to Waldron, uh, the Black Shook story had a, a sort of a political religious context that uh, people get caught up with the, the giant dog. And it's very interesting. But there's a lot more going on in that story than just a black dog appearing and killing people. Yes. So, yeah, I imagine that as, as we look at these these black dog stories, uh, each of them on their own has these elements that are they're repeated but they also have their own uh additional material that may you know may be telling you a lesson or may may be told as a scary I, true story so yes absolutely and within folklore this idea of the morality tale is a very strong one actually um so you find within black dog traditions there's a, a story that comes from near me about a black dog called the black dog of the Haines. Um, and this is um, a story about a family who one member of this family made a wager that he could ride between one point and another point in a particularly short period of time or die trying, which sometimes is in this story as well. Um, so he sets out, he, he gallops his horse from point A to point B. Just before he arrives at point B, this black dog jumps out scares the horse, the horse rears, the man is thrown from the horse and he breaks his neck and dies. Moral of the tale could be about not placing bets, not gambling, not putting wages on. There's a moral of the tale that says don't ride like an idiot in the same way as don't drink and drive in modern times. There are lots of different right. morals that you could get from that. But then you look across the country and you find this same story in three, four, five other places uh, with differences as you would expect but still ultimately somebody riding a horse between two points and a black dog jumping out scaring the horse and the man being thrown breaking his neck and dying so yes the morality tale is is an important aspect within folklore and that's that's probably a good example of that and this this transmission does happen and you're right actually blake about this kind of viral transmission and it does predate the internet as as you were talking about that i suddenly remembered being told as a trigger warning for anybody who's eating their dinner while they're listening to this particular <laughs> podcast. They should know to not do that by now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I remember being told in good faith by somebody that I worked with years ago that although it happened, hadn't happened to them, uh, a friend of theirs had been eating a particular brand of fried chicken, which is available all over the world, and had bitten into a cyst in the chicken, became ill, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think Jan Brunvans covered that one, as well as as well as the deep-fried rat and other similar ones. It's a well-known urban legend, but I was told it as a friend of a friend tale. Um, so it is like this viral transmission of memes these days. You know, you had it before the internet, for sure. So we have... Uh... <laughs> we have the the superstition about a black cat crossing your path uh, and being bad luck. Um, yeah. is, is there any anything similar like that with black dogs and any any other superstitions associated with black dogs? Well, I, I guess um, it's not superstitions in the same way particularly, but there are certainly different aspects to the black dog. Um, the shook, as I said before, or the bar guest is another particular term for that type of black dog, is, is very much um, portentous. So it's an omen of either bad luck or it's an omen of doom or death within the family to um, see the shook or to meet it head on or to be paced by it or any one of a number of different versions. Um but then there are other variants of black dog folklore where the dog is protective. And there are many, many stories within folklore where um, a woman usually or sometimes a particularly timid man walking late at night is walking through um, a forest or a very lonely road or some other piece of terrain which is very remote 
uh, and a random black dog joins them, accompanies them on their route, and disappears at the other end. Either they go into the house and they say to their wife or husband, this dog has accompanied me, come and look at it, and it's gone. Or they just turn around and it's disappeared. And then it transpires later on in the story that there had been, you know, known robber activity or muggers or some other kind of malicious character on this road from whom this person has been protected from whatever nefarious ends they were going to suffer. So there is this uh, idea of the black dog as a very protective symbol as well. Um, and those sorts of stories are slightly different. I guess we probably should have split this down earlier, but you find this with ghost lore as well. Uh, and probably actually um, with other types of monster lore. There are two different versions. There's to take ghosts. There's the folk ghost and there's the eyewitness account of a ghost or a haunting. So the folk ghost is a ghost from within history where there are no eyewitness accounts, there are no names associated with the story. The story is legendary or it's traditional or it's one of these morality tales or whatever. And that's slightly different um, to the eyewitness account so where you get sent something by a person who saw this a few days ago or or whatever and that that's more of a kind of they have experienced something firsthand which may or may not be the same as drawing from this folk tradition or this folk ghost aspect and you you find it with yet yeah, monster lore and everything else as well i guess the idea of motifs in folklore i mean obviously there's a lot of these ideas these little nuggets of, of information like the giant dog or headless dog or the dog is a harbinger of doom or guardian or tied to a family are those motifs and, and i guess what i'm wondering is like, how are motifs used in folklore research uh from an academic perspective yeah. uh well you said earlier on i think that um you called motifs kind of an element of the story or an element of folklore uh, and that's that's probably a good way of describing them. So um, mo motifs are these kind of elements that set a story apart from another story. If you like. um, there's a very, very comprehensive index of motifs within folklore, which was drawn together um, by Stith Thompson. It's the Motif Index of Folk Literature. Um, and this is a massive collection of of what are considered to be all the distinct motifs within folklore tales and they're they're all numbered and cross-referenced um so for example motif e384 is ghost summoned by music and then you get subdivisions from that so e384.1 ghost is summoned by a beating drum e384.2 ghost is raised by whistling um, and it, it's a way of drawing all these different elements together so that they can be cross-referenced between stories. It, it's it's a very academic approach, uh, but it's not an approach necessarily that, that many folklorists these days would refer to particularly as quite, perhaps quite an archaic approach. It's a very, very valuable um, piece of work. Uh, but really, the, yeah, the motifs within folklore are these elements that set stories apart from each other and allow you to, to compare how different stories work. So, yes, headless is, is a motif and then it would be broken down. So you'd have a headless black dog or you'd have the headless horseman or, or you'd have um, headless horses uh, pulling a phantom coach. So the headless part is a particular motif, and then you have all these different subdivisions as to how that could occur in different stories. Neat. So it's a kind of typology, in a sense. Yeah, so absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been looking at historical accounts of black dogs, um, and you've also mentioned that there are still stories around today. Could you tell us a little bit about some recent uh, accounts of black dogs and sightings? Well, recent accounts really in many ways are very similar to old accounts. And this is, this is something that I was touching on before in so much as people will report 
being paced by a dog, for example, or, or seeing a dog do a particular thing. Um, but there are there are variations based on time. So in folklore, there are a number of stories where people who were in a pony and trap would have been paced by a dog that would accompany the pony and trap. And there are stories from more modern times where black dogs are reported to have paced people who were in cars. So they're very similar. Um, but what happens in some of these more recent stories, and this kind of touches on what I was saying earlier about um, Ben Radford's work with the Chupacabra um, and, and the way that these stories are related to the culture around you, uh, is that there is this kind of change in some of the aspects that are being reported. So this thing about the eyes is still reported. Uh, the size of the eyes is still reported. But in a lot of traditional accounts where the eyes were said to be red, in a lot of more modern accounts, the eyes are said to be yellow or are said to be black. Um, and what's probably happening here is, again, people are drawing on this culture of lycanthropy or werewolf law um, and these kind of traditions within horror films. You look at American Werewolf in London and things like that. Uh, and they're kind of mapping those aspects onto their experiences. And the other thing that we find a lot more that we didn't have with the older accounts is that uh, there are a lot more uh, auditory phenomena reported with more recent accounts. So in older accounts, there was very, very little sound. Maybe the sound of the dog walking might have been the main thing. Uh, there is a type of black dog in the same way as some are categorized as shooks. There's um, in one particular area of the country, the dog is called the padfoot. There's a, a link there with um, Harry Potter. Harry for those Potter, that, yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, that go in with that. Sirius, Sirius Black um, was also called padfoot. Um, and, and J.K. Rowling uses a lot of folklore in her work. So yeah, Sirius Black. Sirius relates to the dog star. Black, obviously, is the black element, so you have black dog. He was also known as Padfoot, which is a particular type of black dog from one part of the UK. Um, but, but yes, that and that the derivation of that may well be the sound that the dog made, made as it walked. There's another variation of the black dog, which is called the trash. And again, that probably comes from the sound that the dog's paws made as it walked. But Aside from that, very, very little in the older accounts um, that suggest any kind of noise. Whereas in more modern accounts, lots of people report um, more demonic noises, growling or snarling or, or more demonic hellhound style noises. So again, culture is changing the way that these experiences are decoded and the way that they're related. I think in many cases... Um, there's no reason to doubt that people have experienced what they say they have because let's face it there's quite big money to be made out of a decent UFO abduction story there's quite a big money to be made out of uh, a decent sighting of the Loch Ness Monster with some supporting evidence but you don't find very many people claiming to have experienced a black dog and going out for publicity off the back of it because the law is not strong enough in that way there's nearly a thousand years of it, but within our culture, it's not hugely strong. So I don't take most of these cases and say somebody's probably making that up because they have no reason to particularly. Um, so I don't doubt that most people experience these things in the way that they do. Mm -hmm. And that's where I become more interested in it, is why they're decoding it in this way. So, yeah, these more modern accounts, they're very, very similar, but you get these slight variations. They sound a lot like uh, modern accounts of big cat sightings. Yeah, there is a train of thought that suggests that that's the case, but I don't personally subscribe to that because um, the descriptions are too different in most cases. Um, I have no reason to doubt, because I've seen some quite different evidence to suggest the other way, that there are not big cats, you know, loose in the wild in, in the kind of area that I live in and many other places right. live in. 
Um, I have no reason to doubt that at all. At the end of the day, um, you know, the, uh, ab- the Dangerous Wild Animals Act coming in, lots of people released animals like that into the wild. There's no reason to suggest that they couldn't quite happily survive and breed. And um, it's, it's more likely that there are big cats in the wild around here than there are uh, a family of Sasquatch, probably. Um, particularly because you don't tend to get very many Bigfoot sightings in the southwest of the UK. But um, the descriptions are very, very different, and I I don't think that there's sufficient evidence to say that they are, in a lot of cases, miscited actual animals. It would account for some, but not many. Well, uh, Go ahead. Sorry, Kieran. I was just going to say, in the sense of the way the eyes are described uh, and that they're often the they're black dogs and they're often black large, large black cats, um, yep. it's very similar to the descriptions in Australia in particular that, that I've heard of, just on the surface of things. Yes, yes. In, in some cases, the, the, there are similarities. Um, and I think depending on the country that you're looking at, it's it's more likely or less likely... Um, that they would account for a large percentage of those sightings. So in Australia, where there's not a particularly prolific um, black dog folklore dissemination, yes, I would probably agree that um, a larger percentage of cases would possibly be, you know, um, miscited actual animals. In the UK, it's kind of the other way around. Okay, interesting. It's it, the the funny the the sort of. The phrasing you use, you have no reason to doubt, or that sort of thing. From from, as a skeptic, sometimes I kind of cringe because I think, oh, well, I, I really should be doubting everything because it's a modality of thinking, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, but I, yeah, it's the the question I think is, you know, do you have any reason to suspect that the people who cite these things or claim to have were were being insincere? And so the, it's like instead of the benefit of the doubt, I I, I guess it's the benefit of the sincerity. I, I usually assume that people. I, I doubt a lot of things people wouldn't doubt because there's no re- it's mundane stuff because it's just so many things about our memory and, and the way we frame stories m- means that what we think happened may not be what happened even in regular everyday occurrences. So um, it's it's been a strange experience to become, uh, you know, uh, I don't want to say to become a hardcore skeptic. I don't, it's not like a... Uh, an achievement. It's just this this mode of thinking has become uh, my default, right? And and so it doesn't always serve me well. I, I you know, there's plenty of places in life where you're better off just going with it, right? <laughs> in matters of the heart, for example. <laughs> the, but but what <laughs> but you it, know, what, it's... I, <laughs> what I wanted to say was, I think Karen was trying to draw a parallel between uh, the giant cats or big cats, not necessarily to use it as an explanation for the big dogs, but the the uh, black eyed some kids of the descriptions story. yeah yeah I was gonna say the black eyed kids stories are, are you familiar with that lore yes okay yeah. so, so yeah. to me as a just a lot of those stories don't make much sense from a scientific rational perspective right but they mm-hmm. do make great sense as a as a new and developing folklore I mean it it they we can kind of trace them back to an original case zero. And yep. as those stories have spread, people have added to the lore and whether or not there's real things happening where people are really seeing things, I don't know, but people are generating yeah. these stories uh, and using yep, many absolutely. of the same words. It's, it's very interesting. It's happening yep. in, right now. Right. Yeah. It's seeing it's, something. Uh, yeah. There are, there are other versions. The, the very first episode of the folklore podcast that I did, was an interview with um, Andrea Kitter on the Slenderman stories. Um, and, and we got a very, very similar uh, example there. Slenderman as a figure within folklore was most definitely created. We know who created Slenderman. We know when Slenderman was created. Pop onto the creepy pasta and have a look at the history of Slenderman. Um, it's very, very easily traceable. But yet, it now starts to disseminate and it starts to enter folklore because people are reporting experiences with Slender Man like it is an actual supernatural character, not not a created entity. 
did you notice any ways to get rid of these ghostly hounds? Because, you know, a lot of our listeners, if they get attacked by a monster, they might refer to our podcast to help guide them and how to deal with it. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't really know much about, you know, fighting off uh, ghostly hounds. Is there anything in particular that repeats? Is there any go-to methodology or do the stories typically deal with getting rid of them? No, 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 they don't actually. There isn't, within black dog law, there isn't really that aspect to it. It's not that um, that people are hounded, for want of a better term, <laughs> by them. Um, I probably shouldn't have used that phrase. No, no, it's fine, it's fine, I, I promise. It's <laughs> Blakeworthy. <laughs> That's asking for trouble. It gave me pause. No, no, but... <laughs> I'm very, yeah, I told you I should not have used that phrase. <laughs> but we don't find that aspect though people there, there isn't this need in in much of this law for because people are not being terrorized by them um, no i mean they, they tend to be one-off events it, it's it's not that people are haunted by them in that way uh, i don't necessarily mean that in the kind of ghostly aspect but it, it's it's not something that people experience and feel that they need to necessarily get rid of. It's just a, tends to be a one-off event that, that is odd in some way. Hmm. I wanted to ask as well, uh, this is kind of a sideline question, but the stories you hear about um, an owner of a, a dog uh, and they pass away and then the dog sits as a guardian on their grave for for mm-hmm. years or, or for months or weeks or something like that. Uh, are there any of the black dog stories that are tied to that kind of story uh, or maybe graveyard hounds or something like that? Well, there are, there are certainly lots of stories that relate to graveyards, but, but not in that particular way. Um, there are, there are stories where, uh, a, a person who has owned a dog and perhaps travelled a particular route frequently, so it might be a merchant or somebody like that who was always trading between two points. Um, they would die, uh, and then their dog would continue the route, or their dog would die, um, but would come back and, and walk the same route. So there's kind of that aspect. Sure. Um, there's there's not so much the kind of guardian aspect in that way. Black dogs can be seen as guardians, um, but they're they're possibly within folklore sometimes the guardians of treasure or they're the guardians of a particular place. Okay. Um, but but not quite in that same way as being the um, the faithful hound who who Men's sits on friend. the grave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. I feel like we could uh, just keep talking about this topic for hours. There's just so much to discuss, but uh, unfortunately we're at that point where we need to just draw things in. People who are listening to this podcast because it is the folklore podcast, rather than people who are listening to this podcast because it is Monster Talk, as this is a crossover episode, mm-hmm. will want me to ask you, Karen and Blake, what is your favourite piece of folklore? Ooh, Nice. I, I'm very fond of um, the uh, Lord Dufferin story. Oh. That, that in, he was basically retelling it. So for people who don't know, he claimed or he told a story as true where um, he was staying with some friends and he woke up in the middle of the night and saw a strange-looking man um, carrying a box that could have been a coffin. He's not really sure. Uh, and the guy gave him a weird look, and he thought that was odd. But he went back to bed, and the next day he tells the uh, the hosts about it, and they say, well, they don't know who he's talking about. They know everybody in the village. They don't know who he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a few years go by, and he's in Paris, and he goes into a hotel, and he's about to get on an elevator, and he notices the guy running the elevator is the guy that he had seen in the lawn carrying that box. And he, he take it aback so he doesn't get on the elevator the elevator goes up and it crashes to the ground and kills everyone on board including the mysterious man and then according to Dufferin no one ever identified the body but because of it uh, he had been given this sort of portent um, and was able to avoid this accident now he told that story is true 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I read it uh, as though it were true when I was a kid. And later on in life, I, I went and investigated because it occurred to me after doing all this sort of paranormal investigation that the, there are elements in the story that could be investigated. And I did all the research to find out what he gave the name of the hotel. Was there ever an elevator accident there? Did it kill anybody? And so on. And then mm-hmm. I, I learned that not only um, uh, did it not happen, but that it was tied into urban legend or I guess legendary folklore about um, black uh, horse-drawn carriages uh, and the drivers thereof being portents of doom. Um, it was redone on the Twilight Zone where there was an episode where they kept uh, the woman in the elevator kept saying room for one more. Uh, and that turned out to be a portent for a plane crash. Spoiler. Uh, but if you know. <laughs> anyway, and so I, I love that story. And I have a lot of folklore that I like, but that particular one was very educational for me because in addition to investigating it, I also learned an important life lesson, which is before you spend a lot of time doing original research, check to see if someone else has done it before because after I did all my work, I discovered that it had already been debunked um, by, oh, what's his name? Something Harris, Melvin Harris, I think. Um, And then before him, Paul Huse had also done the same work uh, at the turn of the century. And so um, multiple investigators had already done the same footwork to come to the same conclusion, but it is a fascinating story. Yeah, that's a that's a fun one. That's one of my favorites as well. And I guess uh, just the one I'm thinking of now is not as specific as that. It's a bit more general and there's no particular lesson to it. Um, but I was just thinking about one of my favorite bits of folklore being that one house that's in your, your neighborhood. Uh, the one that's that everyone thinks of as being creepy you know, when you're when you're a kid. Uh, that's either the, the witch's house or uh, a haunted house or the murder house or something like that. Um, I was discussing this recently with my husband. It seems to be something that you find in the States as well as I, I found growing up in Australia. I'm not sure if it's the same case uh, for you, Mark, in, in England. If there's a, when you were growing up, if there was a house on the street or in the neighborhood or um, in your suburb or city that kids looked at as being the creepy house. Oh, I think in some cases there absolutely is. And I think you'll probably find that in any location. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so often, I mean, Halloween's not a huge thing in, in Australia, but it'd be the house that you would avoid, the kids would have avoid. Um, and so the house that was in, in my neighborhood, uh, in my area, it was uh, in, in Sydney, a place near near Manly. Um, and my brother, I probably shouldn't be talking about this, but my brother and a couple of his friends broke into the, the house one night to check it out and see what was going on there. Um and so they found some very, very strange things in there. There was a six-foot concrete bath that they discovered. Uh, there was no one in the house at the time. Um, they found lots of materials, uh, Rosicrucian materials and books and pamphlets. And they also found lots of wads of German banknotes. So they thought, oh, we're going to be rich, all of this money that we've found. And it turns out they were notes from the period of uh, hyperinflation after World War One in Germany, where people are uh, pushing around wheelbarrows full of money. It was just utterly worthless. So, um, yeah, just a just very strange house um, that we all thought was haunted or that there was a witch living there or that a murder had taken place. And um, so I couldn't even tell you exactly where the house is today but um it's a very strange place and it just seems like across cultures there seem to be this eerie creepy house that uh, kids avoid my thanks to blake and karen for a fascinating discussion there are full biographies of them and links to their work on our website in the guest section you can also get our supplement for this episode which is an extensive discussion on the subject by myself on the website or get all of our supplements automatically by becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash the folklore podcast. There is still time to vote for the folklore podcast as your favourite show in the British Podcast Awards for this year. Please visit britishpodcastawards.com slash vote or use the link on our website or social media if you would like to support us in trying to win an award. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Folklore Podcast is created and hosted by me, Mark Norman. 
Find out more about my writing and research at www.facebook.com slash marknormanfolklore. The Folklore Podcast Art Director is Melissa Martell. Find her work at www.mdmcreate.com. The Folklore Podcast will always be free to listen to, but it is an enormous amount of work to research, create, record and write two of these episodes every month. And so, we have created a simple way in which you can help to support the ongoing life of the Folklore Podcast. Please visit our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com and click on support. There are various ways that you can help, and they don't all involve giving us money. Even just leaving a simple review on iTunes or other podcast apps helps to grow our audience. So please do visit and take a moment to help us to keep going. Thank you for listening. The Folklore Podcast theme music is written and performed by Gurdy Bird.